Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. Joshua says these words, And now I am about to go the way of all the earth. And you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. But just as all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you have been fulfilled for you, so the Lord will bring upon you all the evil things until he has destroyed you from off this good land that the Lord your God has given you if you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and go and serve other gods and bow down before them. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you. You shall perish quickly from off the good land that he has given you. These remarks of Joshua's this final encouragement to the people is meant to equip them for the days ahead. But it's interesting to observe that this same scene, the same characters gathered, the exact same words spoken, can be read in different ways depending on the order that we find it in the story. In the book of Joshua, this speech comes right at the end. We just have one more chapter left, that famous choose you this day encouragement that's going to come. So coming at the end, naturally, this speech has a kind of drama to it. If we were making the film of Joshua 23, we put some epic rising music underneath these words. It would start off gently, and then it would build and build until finally there was this, this heartwarming crash of chords that kind of shivered through you as you felt encouraged and inspired, perhaps even shed a tear over these beautiful words of Joshua. And you feel encouraged, you feel hopeful. But if we arrange the narrative a little bit differently and we read this chapter as the prologue or the introduction to, for example, the book of Judges, then the character of the words change. The words themselves are the same, but what we see in them changes a little bit. Joshua's encouragement, Joshua's message to the people of Israel is a promise of rest. But it's a promise of rest on condition of faithfulness. In verse 15, he refers to all the good things that God has given you. All of the things he's promised, every word of it, has been fulfilled. He's done everything that he said he would do, and now Israel is at rest. Israel has entered rest. The beginning of chapter 23, we're told that Israel is now at rest. That state of existence which they strived for, they've now entered into. And the promises have been fulfilled. But, but, Joshua says, if you transgress the covenants, if you serve other gods, then the Lord will bring upon you all the evil things until he has destroyed you from off this good land. Probably we hear those words differently than their first hearers would have heard them. For them, this 
encouraging, inspiring, congratulatory speech about the future as the curtains begin to close. And although he gives a warning about what will happen if we transgress, and the people who heard this, they must have thought the odds of that happening were small. How could we possibly go down this path that we're being warned about, considering all that's been done? They didn't need Joshua to tell them that all the promises had been fulfilled. They knew it. They had lived it. They had seen it. They dwelled in the land that had once seemed unobtainable. They knew it, and it was impossible to imagine that they would ever leave the God who had given them the things they couldn't have had any other way and serve other gods. I'm sure they understood Joshua has to say something like this. It's expected on an occasion like this to issue these sort of pro forma warnings, but obviously that's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. All they had to do to stay in the land, to continue that rest, was to stay faithful. And how hard could that be? Considering all the good reason they had to remain faithful. God had given them so much, of course they would stay faithful. Even so, the more thoughtful among them, those maybe who were well-read, who knew their Pentateuch well, might have wondered, because the words of Joshua bear a kind of echo of words that were spoken to our first parents, Adam and Eve, who enjoyed a blissful rest, a kind of Eden, which we aspire to be restored. All they had to do in order to enjoy that rest was to stay faithful. And they had certain advantages that, that the people of Israel didn't have. They were not fallen, not corrupted by sin, did not have that, that internal dividedness to struggle against. And yet even they had failed to do the easy thing that was necessary in order for that rest to continue. They had failed to stay faithful, and if they had failed, perfect as they were, then fallen as we are, maybe things weren't as simple as they must have seemed. Of course, for us, looking back, with the benefit of hindsight, there's something a little chilling about these warnings. Because if we do read Chapter 23 as the beginning of a story. It is the conclusion of one story, but the beginning of another, that, that nation of Israel. We know that the history that continues from here is a history of unfaithfulness. Cycles of, of unfaithfulness, of serving other gods, of doing the unthinkable things that Joshua speaks of here. Knowing the condition to continue in the rest, and then knowing the history, we can look back and think, oh yeah, there was never any chance of this being fulfilled. There was never any way that things would continue as they were. And yet, there is a continuing allure that promise of conditional rest. If we had to put a name on the message that Joshua is proclaiming here, that he's preaching here, what Joshua is preaching is the law. He's preaching the law. And the law promises threats on condition of faithfulness. And you notice the law acknowledges. 
just grants. There's no antithesis there. Joshua reminds the people they didn't win this land themselves. They didn't conquer the land themselves. God did it for them. God fought for them. So there is that acknowledgement. And yet, he says, in order to remain at rest, you must, and these are his words from verse 6 of chapter 23, you must be very strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses. Otherwise, you will, as we saw, perish quickly. So all you have to do is stay faithful. And to stay faithful, all you have to do is be very strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses. Again, from a Christian point of view, in hindsight, we look and say, well, that's an impossible standard. But if you read the story of the rich young ruler in the New Testament, you understand people didn't see it that way. It was impossible for people to see themselves as keepers of the law. They didn't mean that they were perfect. They knew they weren't perfect, but they needed some sort of gracious act on God's part. But they were, so to speak, remaining in that state through their faithfulness. There's a reason why these promises of conditional rest resonate. And it's because, I think, they reflect a, a deep instinct, like a truth that we intuit about the human condition. It's something that we know. We know that we're weak. We know that we're not perfect. We know that we have failings. And so something must be necessary, some outside higher power, some benevolence, some grace from God is necessary. And this speaks to that. The, the good that we enjoy, we do it ourselves. We benefit from it. We acknowledge that. We feel it deeply that that must be so. <clears throat> At the same time, if we have benefited so greatly, we also feel deeply that there is some sort of reciprocal obligation to do good in return, to uh, be faithful in return, that we don't want to uh, bite the hand that feeds us, to be ungrateful when we receive so much. That's something we feel deeply as human beings, Christian and non-Christian that we rely on something larger than ourselves, and that we, in some sense, must live lives that are in keeping with that reality in order to maintain it, in order to hold on to it. This message of conditional rest is commonly preached in churches. It's commonly proclaimed from pulpits. God has saved you by grace. And now all you need to do is be obedient in order to remain in his favor and be blessed. You just need to start serving him. And as long as you're faithful to God, then God will be faithful to you. It's a message often proclaimed. And not only in churches, a message proclaimed outside churches as well. We admit nobody's perfect. We have to cut each other some slack. All that really matters is that you strive to be good, to be a good person, that you live up to a high moral standard and not descend some lower immoral plane. That's what matters. If you're not that kind of person, there will be consequences. 
another way of preaching the same message. And it's the message of the law. The message of the law. There can be rest on condition of faithfulness. There's two things you need to remember when you hear this. That this is the message of the law. It is not the gospel. This is how the law preaches. It's not how the gospel preaches. And the second thing, maybe even more important that you need to remember, is that this doesn't work. That the story of the Old Testament is a history that demonstrates the ineffectiveness of this message, of this conditional rest. Israel, prime example, why this doesn't work. The failure of Joshua's rest reveals the need for a better solution. That's what the history is teaching us. The hindsight is always 2020. The words sounded good when they were first proclaimed. It sounded possible to do what was expected to keep the condition to remain at rest, but the message of the law has failed. Deliver time and time again in the garden, in the Old Testament, and every day since then. Every day that we've told ourselves we can hold on to all the good things in our lives if we're just faithful, if we're just obedient, if we're just good, then we will receive all the blessings. That message has proven be a failure. I'm not saying the law of God is a failure. The law reveals God's holy character. The law gives us insight into how we ought to live. But ultimately, the job that the law does best is to condemn us for our failure. To show us how far short we fall. Romans 5.20, Paul says, Now the law came in to increase the trespass. There was a reason for this message to be proclaimed. There's a reason it resonates, but it's not the reason that we think. It's not because the hope that the preaching of the law fills us with is a hope that actually can be realized. If anything, the law is meant to show us that trusting in our own faithfulness can only get us so far. In Psalm 95, we sing about a future rest. And the example of this rest that was won and then lost is used. And we're told, like, don't be like them. Don't be the way that they were when you look forward to your rest. This psalm of rest is the text that the author of Hebrews quotes and it uses in order to demonstrate that there is a future rest that we should look forward to. He says, look, there was a promise of rest. As Joshua says, the people entered into that rest. But Psalm 95, much later on, sings of rest still to come. That this rest of Joshua, that's past tense. There was a future rest still to come, and the fact that there is points to the shortcomings of the rest that went before the failure. Otherwise, as the author of Hebrews says, God would not have spoken of another day later on. The rest that is to come will not come. 
promise for the gospel of the new covenant that was prophesied in Jeremiah 31, which the author of Hebrews also quotes. The new covenant that was established, inaugurated, and this fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. So the law promises rest on the condition of faithfulness, but the gospel promises rest on the condition of Christ's faithfulness. There's a small difference, but it makes all the difference. The message of Christ is not a promise of conditional rest. The gospel is not proclaiming a conditional rest that we might be able to remain within, assuming that we're faithful. According to Paul, the coming of Christ supersedes all that went before. Everything has changed now. Everything has changed now that Christ has entered into the picture. Listen to what Paul says in Galatians chapter 3. Paul says, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. The law's message of conditional rest when it was first proclaimed probably sounded like good news. But Paul describes it as a kind of captivity, as a kind of bondage, a bondage to the need to save people, to produce an obedience that you're incapable and the ultimate rest that is promised by God is not conditional, at least where we are concerned. Because Christ fulfills the conditions. If we have put on Christ, if we've been made all one in Christ, then we have been made heirs along with Christ, who is the seed of Abraham. Heirs to the promise that was made to Abraham. Not by virtue of our obedience, but by virtue of the family tie. We have entered into the family of God, become sons and daughters, fellow heirs with Jesus Christ. But the rest is on condition of faithfulness. But it's Christ's faithfulness that matters, not yours. Christ's faithfulness accomplishes everything. In theology, we talk about Christ's obedience as being active and passive. Active in the sense that his obedience kept the law, the positive commands of the law, so he was righteous as, as a man ought to be. But passive in the sense that he endured suffering, that he went through the penalties of the disobedience that we as human beings have perpetrated. That obedience of Christ demonstrates his faithfulness, the faithfulness of the Son to the Father in rendering what <laughs> That faithfulness fulfills the condition of our future rest. 
Christ's faithfulness to us has now become the ground of our assurance. When we doubt, we're not sure we're really saved, we're not sure where should we look, oftentimes we're pointing within. Did you really mean it? Were you sincere? Have you noticed any evidence of change in your life? Can you list that evidence for me? look for these means within ourselves of judging whether or not we should be assured. But it's not our faithfulness that should make us feel assured. It's Christ's faithfulness. When we doubt, we doubt whether or not He will stay faithful to us. We already know He will not stay faithful to Him. It's His faithfulness that becomes the grounds of our assurance. So we can have confidence. And not only that, not only does Christ's faithfulness fulfill the condition of our future rest, but Christ sends the Spirit to us to work faithfulness in us. So that we are, in fact, able to be obedient in this life as we are sanctified by the power of the Spirit. But even then, we don't look at that obedience, that faithfulness, and say, okay, look, I'm not perfect, but I do have a long track record of faithfulness. Because we see this is the Spirit working in us. This, too, is a legacy of Christ's faithfulness to us, not the other way around. It's not your own doing, Paul said. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. promises rest on the condition of faithfulness the gospel promises rest on the condition of Christ's faithfulness just added one word Christ don't change is Christ but adding Christ changes everything it changes everything the insight of the message of the law is true as I said it's just it's not the whole truth. The insight that makes this way of thinking so popular in human thought, it's not wrong. We are weak. We are weak. We do need someone outside of us to lift us up. And we do have some kind of an obligation as a result of that. Those things are true. They're just not the whole truth. Yeah, yeah, I have what I 
because of race, but also because I am Also because once raised up by grace, I lived a life of obedience, which allowed me a, a righteousness that not merited me my salvation, but at least gave God no cause to regret that he never smiled upon me. And we can take comfort in the idea that, that while grace did almost all of it, we also have contributed something actually not insubstantial. But the gospel doesn't speak this way. It doesn't regard us this way because the gospel is jealous for the glory of God. And so it gives all the glory to Christ. Christ has done it all. A few weeks ago, in a sermon on inheritance, we looked at Ephesians chapter 1. Paul talked about his prayer for the Ephesians and his prayer for them that their eyes would be opened to the value of the inheritance that they have. But we stopped in the middle of a sentence, which is not hard to do when you're dealing with Pauline sentences because they're lengthy. But this is an important sentence and we need to pick it back up where we left off because that's not all that Paul says. He talks about the, the glorious inheritance one. We'll start in verse 16 and fill in the rest of that sentiment. It says, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him, who fills all in all. From the beginning, God's plan was to glorify himself in Christ. And if you leave Christ out, you miss everything. You lose everything. Shows us the need we have for the gospel. The whole history of Israel reveals to us the need we have for the person of Jesus Christ. And this is why the message we must always proclaim is the gospel of Jesus Christ. We must always speak the name of Christ. You can't speak the true gospel without speaking the name of Jesus Christ. Because every other message, as hopeful as it sounds, leaves you with a condition left to be fulfilled that you cannot possibly fulfill. But by the same token, when you name Jesus Christ, you speak everything that is necessary for the gospel of salvation. Everything that is necessary is contained in Christ. Everything necessary to rest that lasts, that endures, that is everlasting. Everything that is required is spoken in the name of Jesus Christ and nothing else is necessary but Christ. Nothing else is required because Christ changes everything. Being a good person isn't enough. Holding on to a tradition isn't enough. Living a decent life 
as long as there have been Joshua's promising rest on condition of obedience, there have been Israel's demonstrating just how difficult and impossible that true faithfulness is, proving over and over again that as good as it is, as true as it is, the law can only get us as far as condemnation. So stop trying to find faithfulness inside yourself. Instead, put your hope faithfulness in Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.